The following sermon, entitled Naomi Brought Home Again, was preached on the morning of December 18, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. This morning we read God's Word in two places. First, we will read from Luke 15. And though I would like to read the whole of the chapter, we will limit ourselves to the first ten verses. Three parables are found in this chapter, all of which are connected. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son. Let's read the first two. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And then what follows in the chapter is the well-known parable of the prodigal son who went away for a time, but then ultimately came back to his father's embrace. Now let's turn to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. We'll read the whole chapter. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. 
And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have an husband. If I should say, if I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters. For it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back into her people, and under her gods return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. And thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she called unto them, she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. And they came at Bethlehem, came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Thus far we read God's Word. The text is verse 21. I went out full... And the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. And while I say verse 21 is the text, it's really just seven words there in verse 21. The Lord hath brought me home again. I trust most of you have been able to deduce the reason for the sermon this morning. For in the bulletin, there is an announcement regarding a new member to our congregation. A woman who was born in a Reformed church who made confession of faith there, but then who left the church and for much of her life had nothing to do with the church, only to be brought back again in God's providence and by His marvelous grace.
such an announcement is worthy of a special sermon. For certainly we do not have a special sermon every time someone joins the church from outside. But this case is unique. Because in this case, we are given to see the wonder of God's preserving grace whereby He keeps His own so that though they may go astray for a time, nevertheless, He brings them back home again. For us as a congregation, Ruth Wilkerson is an illustration of that glorious truth. And for the people who know who knew Naomi, the mother of Ruth in the Bible, no doubt they thought the same thing. If you see, there are certain parallels between the story that's briefly noted in the bulletin and the story that we find here in Scripture. The trajectory of Ruth, the member of our congregation, and the trajectory of Naomi and her life, the They follow one another because this Naomi that we just read about, she too grew up in the church. She was a believing child of God. But for at least ten years, she left the church. Had nothing to do with the church. She wandered for a time. But by God's grace, she was brought back. She was brought home again. And thus she too is A beautiful picture of God's preserving grace. And that's what we want to see this morning as we look at this passage and really those seven words in verse 21. The Lord hath brought me home again. Theme for this morning's sermon is Naomi brought home again. First, we are going to look at the wayward daughter. Second, the preserved saint. And then third, the thankful response. Naomi brought home again. The wayward daughter the preserved saint, and the thankful response. Ruth chapter 1 begins by telling us about the sinful decision of Elimelech and Naomi to leave the promised land and to go and live in Moab for a time. Ruth 1 begins by telling us this, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. So this is a family who was born and raised in the land of Israel. They grew up in the Old Testament church of that day. But then during a time of famine, made the decision to go and live in Moab. Evidently, there was not a famine in Moab and they thought this is better for us. And you can almost hear them trying to justify their decision as they talk about it. What are we going to do? There's a famine here and it's persisting. There's no food. If we, if we stay here in the land of Israel, we, we might starve to death. We, we might die. And what good will that do? If 
heard there's food in Moab. And after all, our, our forefathers, they went down into Egypt because there was food there. We, we, should, we should go to Moab because there's food there. And they, they justified their decision to leave. But though they could come up with excuses, that does not mean it was a legitimate decision. For the reality is that it was wrong for them to leave Israel. This was a sinful decision because of the significance of the promised land of Israel. This was the land of Israel's inheritance. This was the land that God had promised to give to the people where He would dwell with them. God had told them, I will put My name there. And He would live with them there. He gave them that tabernacle to show that His covenantal presence in their midst so that the land of Israel was representative of the church in the Old Testament. And to live in Israel was to be a part of the church. And thus for Elimelech and Naomi to leave was for them to leave the church. Consider what they're leaving behind. They're leaving behind the right worship of God at the tabernacle. They are leaving behind the, the means of grace. The preaching and all of the sacrifices. They are leaving behind the, the covenant community. They're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And in doing all of this, really what they're doing is forsaking Jesus Christ. For Christ was the one who was represented in those sacrifices. Christ was the one who was declared in the preaching of that day. Christ was the one who was typified in the men who served as judges, the men who served as priests. And it's in light of that we say that this was a sinful decision. Now that raises the question, how is it a child of God could be so foolish as to make that kind of a decision? And the answer is that this reminds us of the remaining presence and the deceitful power of sin in our hearts and lives. Because when God saves us, He does overthrow the reign of sin in our lives. He gives us a new life. He gives us a new man. But He does not altogether, at least not in this life, deliver us from our sinfulness, from the body of sin, so that each one of us still has an old man of sin within us. There's a part of us that's inclined to all evil. And thus we continue to sin. But now on top of the presence of sin within us, there's the, the power and the deceitfulness of sin. The very character of sin is that it's blinding. It, it, it hides itself from view. So that we're often deceived. We're often led to believe that this thing or that thing is not all that bad when it's really sin against God and His commandments. And it's in light of that that the child of God continues to sin. And due to the remaining presence of sin and the power of sin, it can even be that the saved child of God falls deeply into sin, is guilty of a, a lamentable fall, a great sin. And we see this not only with Elimelech and Naomi, we see many biblical examples of this truth. 
Consider for, consider for example, Manasseh, who grew up under his godly father, Hezekiah, but when his father is dead and he is now king, Manasseh lives a life of sin. He, he plunges himself into the worst forms of idolatry. Consider Jonah. The wayward prophet. God told him to go to Nineveh and preach the Gospel there. And Jonah goes the exact opposite direction. He, he goes down the path of sin. Consider David and his sins of murder and adultery. Consider Peter and his sin of denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are but a few of the biblical examples that show the remaining presence of sin in our hearts and lives and the power of sin that it still holds sway in our lives. And it's in light of these examples that there needs to be a warning against sin and walking in the ways of sin. As God's people, we must never take lightly the power of sin within us. We must never be guilty of minimizing sin or supposing that we are immune to some great fall into sin. What this passage underscores is the importance of being on guard, being watchful. What this passage underscores is the importance of being under the means of grace, continuing to hear the preaching. This passage underscores the importance of being surrounded by the, the church community. Others who can help observe when we are starting to go astray and can call us back to the right way. It's a warning here. Again, starting down that path of sin. The path that leads away from God. And the specific warning in light of the specific example here is a warning against Ever walking away from the church. From turning your back on it for a time. For that too is a temptation for the child of God. And oh, how good we are at justifying it. My work, it's, it's in a place that's not close to the church. This is a, this is a good job. There, there's good benefits here. Surely the Lord wants me to provide for myself so He won't mind if I move away from a place where there's a true church of Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's the prospect of a spouse. A young man, a young woman. And no, he or she do not go to church, but that, that's okay. I can go along with that young man, that young woman, and before you know it, you've married that individual and followed your spouse's example of not living your life in the church. Maybe it's for the prospect of having fun, for riotous living. That's the example in the last part of Luke 15 with that prodigal son. He he left the church for a time, as it were, because he wanted to go and revel in the things of this life. But beloved, such a decision is folly. 
It's not the way of blessing to leave the church. But it's the way that leads to destruction. It's the path that leads further and further and further away from our God. And thus there needs to be a warning against making this same decision that Naomi and Elimelech made to leave the land of Israel to leave the church of that day and to go and live in a strange land where they'd be surrounded by people who worshipped idols. Let no one here make that same decision. It's a path that leads to destruction or at the very least, if it does not lead to your destruction, it will lead to great bitterness. That is, even if God preserves you, brings you back, the road back will be one full of bitterness. That was the case for Naomi. For God would bring her back. She's one of His elect daughters chosen in eternity, but the road back was a road full of hardship. And that God chastened her for her sin. And that's what we see when we continue reading verses 1 and 2 set before us her sinful decision. In verses 3 through 5, we see God's chastening hand upon her. Verse 3, we read, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And then verse 4 tells us about how her sons get married. But then verse 5 says, And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. One by one, her family dies off. And the key is to recognize that this is the Lord's chastening hand upon her. These things are not just happy net random, but God is the one who ordered and directed these events. And Naomi recognized that. She saw that this was God's chastening hand. That's her confession in verse 13, for example. In the end of verse 13, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Same thing in verse 20. And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. These verses are telling us that Naomi recognized God's hand in this. She made the connection between her sinful decision on the one hand and the death that had come upon her family members. She knew the Lord was disciplining her for her sin. And He did so to help her see the error of her way. He did so as a part of His work to bring her back to Him. But understand the chastening was only a part of that work. Because what ultimately brings Naomi back is not the chastening, but it's the reminder of God's mercy. And that's what comes out in verse 6. Verse 6, we see Naomi deciding to go back. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. And if we ask why, what led to her what led her to go back to the promised land? If we continue reading, we read, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. 
And now understand, it's not the bread itself that is the reason for going back. It's not, well, there's a famine now in Moab and there's bread in Israel, so we might as well go there to get our food. It's a part of it. but And that may be what's on the surface, but that's not the heart of it. But the heart of it is that in the Lord giving bread to the people again, the Lord was showing mercy to Israel. He had restored His people. And that's what comes out when we take the book of Ruth in its historical context and its historical setting. It's very significant that at the very beginning of the book, we're told this, and it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. The history of Ruth is a part of the overall history of the judges. And what does the history of the judges look like? Well, the heart of it is that cycle of God's people serving Him for a time, but then falling into sin and God chastening them for a time, often by way of famine. So that the people were led to cry out. God sends a judge. He delivers them. And then He once again blesses them for a period of time. And then the cycle repeats itself. And what we have here in Ruth 1 is a part of that cycle. Ruth 1, when we're told in verse 1 that there's a famine in the land, means that God is chastening the whole of the nation of Israel. He sent a famine to show them their sin. Really, that means when Elimelech and Naomi leave, they're trying to escape God's chastening hand. They find out you cannot escape His chastening hand. It will follow you. But the Lord was chastening Israel. But now when we come to verse 6, and we read, there's bread again, that means God had once again showed mercy to them. And it's significant that that's stated Explicitly, it's not just that there's bread again in the land, but that she had heard that the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. He had shown them mercy. He had restored them. And Naomi knew the connection. She understood the significance of that bread. And thus for her to hear that God had given His people bread again was for her to hear the reminder of God's mercy, of His faithfulness to His people. And that's ultimately what God uses to bring her back. It's the apprehension of God's mercy. And God did indeed bring her back. In the intervening verses, we read about Naomi's interaction with Orpah and Ruth and how Orpah turns back, but Ruth does go with her. That's not our focus this morning. Our focus is on God bringing Naomi back so that we read in verse 19, so they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass that when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them and they said, is this Naomi? God brought her back. Back to the church. Back to the covenant community. Just to say, He brought her home. For is that not Naomi's confession? 
in verse 21. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again. And now admittedly, she adds the word empty. We're not doing full justice to verse 21. We're focusing on God's bringing her back. But that's okay in light of the occasion this morning. God brought her home, not to her physical home, not just to the land she grew up in, but her spiritual home. Because this is one of God's elect daughters. One whom He's chosen in all eternity. One who is a member of her his household, and though she went astray for a time, He brings her home. And thus we see God preserving this saint. And indeed, that's what we need to see in this passage. The preserved saint. As we've explained, Naomi was an elect child of God, and though she departed for a time, God preserved her by bringing her back. And it's in light of this that we are given to see God's work of preserving all of His saints so that the the doctrine that stands on the foreground here in this passage is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. The doctrine that is based on God's Word whereby we believe that in eternity, God chose His elect people. He determined to save certain individuals as part of the body of Christ. In time, He sent Jesus Christ into this world to die on the cross for those elect people. And then having so died, Christ sends His Spirit to take those blessings He has earned and apply them to us so that throughout time we see Christ gathering His church by giving new life to His people, by working faith in our hearts, calling us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And the truth of Scripture is that when Christ works that saving faith in our hearts and lives, when He gives us that new life, He then preserves us in that salvation. He never lets us go again. So that as Philippians 1 verse 6 teaches us, having begun a good work in us, He performs it until the very end. As Matthew chapter 10 teaches us, though all all of our spiritual enemies are trying to pluck us out of God's hand, no one is able. God preserves His own in their salvation. So that the doctrine of the preservation of the saints is the truth that God is the One who infallibly leads His elect people to heaven. He preserves them in their salvation so that it cannot and does not happen that one was given true saving faith, but then ultimately perishes in hell. That never happens. But once God begins that work of grace in someone's heart and life, He preserves them in their salvation. And notably, that work that we've just described includes God's work of bringing back His wayward children. That's the specific aspect 
of the overall doctrine of the preservation of the saints that this particular passage brings out. God brings His people back. This is what God would do with Manasseh. Manasseh who lived for so many years in idolatry is brought to repentance so that he tries to put away all of the idols out of the land of Israel. This is what God would do with Jonah. So that though he tried to get away, though he tried to flee, God would bring him back, work repentance in his heart so that he would cry out, salvation is of the Lord. And then he would go and proclaim that message to the people of Nineveh. This is what God does for David. So that David confesses his sin before God. This is what God does for Peter in his lamentable fall and that Peter is restored and confirmed in his work as an apostle. God preserves His own. That is, He heals our backsliding. He he works in us by His Spirit so that we come to see our sin for what it is. He makes us sorry for our sin so that we cry out to Him in forgiveness. And He forgives our sin, including our sin of backsliding, our sin of waywardness. He draws us back to Himself. How does he do that? Well, most often it follows the very same pattern that we see here with Naomi. Often there's chastening. Always there's a reminder of his mercy. How does the Lord bring his people back? Often by chastening his people. That's what he did with Manasseh. Manasseh is carried away into captivity. He's made a prisoner in the land of Babylon. It's only then that he cries out that God would forgive him. With Jonah, God sends that storm to halt Jonah in his tracks to keep him from wandering further away. And God still often works that way. He disciplines, He corrects, He chastens those who go astray. And He uses that to wake us up to the seriousness of our sin to see that this is not a good path that I'm going down. This is the the path of folly. The path that leads away from God. And God chastens us to show us that. So when we go astray, God often uses chastening to bring us back. But whether or not that chastening is a part of it, always it's God's mercy that ultimately brings us back. For the chastening by itself is not going to do it. The chastening by itself, that pain, that affliction, all by itself is only going to lead one further and further away from God. But it's the chastening coupled with God's mercy. That's what it was for Naomi. She saw the Lord being merciful to the people of Israel and she trusted the Lord would be merciful to her as well. That's how the Lord brings back. But now let's not fail to see this is the Lord's work. It's been implied the entire time that we've been talking about the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. 
But we need to make that point explicit. Because was that not also Naomi's confession? In verse 21, we do not read, I went out full, and then I came to my senses, realized what I was doing wrong by myself, and decided it was time to come back. But instead, what we read is, I went out full, and the Lord brought me back. It was His work. It's not mine. I'm not the one who's able to persevere to the end. It's, it's not my work that I am able to see the error of my way and turn from that. But she gives credit where credit is due. It's the Lord that brought me back. And in particular, this is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is our Seeking shepherd. That's what comes out in Luke 15. The first parable in Luke 15 is the parable of the one lost sheep and the shepherd who leaves the other 99 behind and goes out to find the one. It's pointing us clearly to Jesus Christ the Good Shepherd, who by His own testimony came into this world to seek and to save the lost. This is His work. And understand, this work meant much more than leaving the land of Israel and going to a foreign land and going house to house until finally he found the person he's looking for. But instead, this work meant leaving the glory, the riches of heaven, and coming into this world to seek and to save the lost. It meant subjecting himself to suffering, just as the the shepherd in the parable in Luke 15 is subjecting himself to, he's exposing himself to the elements and to danger by going out and looking for that one lost sheep all the more Jesus Christ exposed himself to a lifetime of suffering. He's exposed himself to the wrath of God against our sin in order to seek and to find and to save, He had to go to the cross of Calvary to pay the debt for our sin. That was the pathway that was marked out for our Savior. That's what it would take in order to seek and to save His own. And what's so beautiful, what's so glorious is that He was going to walk that path and to walk it perfectly so that unlike us, Jesus Christ never wavered. Unlike us, Jesus Christ does not go astray for a little bit and then He needs to be brought back into line. But He persevered on that path. He walked it perfectly. 
though there was bitterness for him every step of the way. Do you see the contrast? For Naomi, it was on account of her waywardness that the Lord made her life bitter. And she was surrounded by death. But for Jesus Christ, though He was faithful, His way was nevertheless made bitter with death ever looming before Him. And yet, He went that way. He did go to the cross. And there He accomplished our salvation. Not that He made it possible for us if we fulfill the condition of believing and persevering to the end. That's not what Christ did at the cross. But He actually saved. He saved us, he saved us fully and completely. And on the basis of His saving work, He now preserves us in our salvation so that when we depart, when we go astray for a time, He sends His Spirit to work in our hearts to draw us back powerfully and efficaciously, bringing us home again. That's the work of the preservation of the saints. And that's what we see this morning. And that we have a woman by the name of Ruth Wilkerson sitting in the pew with us. One who grew up in the covenant community. Was baptized, made confession of faith, but then for many years lived a life apart from the church. But God brought her back. Our Savior Jesus Christ pursued after her so that Ruth, you can make this same confession that Naomi makes. The Lord brought me home again. But Ruth is not the only one in this congregation who has that same experience, is she? Maybe no one else lived apart from the church for as many years as she did, but how many others lived a life of sin for a period of time? Drifted away from the church. Maybe it was in our teenage years, in our early 20s, we focused on a life of pleasure, a life of partying. And though we remained members in the church the whole time, we knew full good and well that our life did not match our confession. But the Lord preserved us. He brought us back. Maybe He sent a storm into our lives. Maybe we had to get caught in our sin. But graciously, by His preserving grace, He, he brought us home again. 
It's not the experience of one person this morning. It's the experience of many this morning. But we cannot stop there either. Because this, the reality is that this is true of every one of us. Every true child of God sitting in the pew this morning is Naomi. Because we're all sinners. Prone to wander. Bent on backsliding. And that's the only explanation why any child of God makes it to heaven is because of God's preserving grace. And that's true. Even for those who never had that period of wandering. That's true. Even if there was never a time in your life that you can look back and yes, I was a wayward son or a wayward daughter for this many weeks or this many months or this many years. The explanation there is not, well, I made myself to differ. I'm somehow better than those people who wandered away for a time. But the explanation is still God's preserving grace. And understand, congregation, that in those cases, God's preserving grace is no less amazing than in the case of a Naomi, the case of a Manasseh, or the case of a Jonah. If anything, it's more amazing. It's almost more amazing because in light of the sinfulness within me, in light of the the deceitful power of sin, you'd almost expect that God has to do this work with Naomi with every single one of us. You'd expect that He has to do it multiple times again and again and again that we, we go so far astray that He has to use His outstretched arm to bring us back. And thus when in the life of the child of God, there's not these great lamentable falls. There's not these periods of time in which we live apart from the church that only magnifies God's preserving grace. If anything, it's more wonderful. Yes, Naomi, Manasseh, Jonah, these these examples are drastic. They catch our eye. It's obvious that God is preserving them. But when He so preserves us that there is not that lamentable fall, when there's not those years of wandering, It magnifies His grace still more. Child of God, you know that grace in your heart and life. I trust you do. And knowing His preserving grace whereby He keeps us Shall we not thank Him? For that is indeed the proper response. Gratitude, thankfulness for this work. Our thankful response is what we want to look at. 
And that's easy enough to state that the response should be thankfulness. But it's worth taking the time to see what that looks like. And I want to conclude with five ways in which we are to show our thanks to God. The umbrella, the overarching response, gratitude, and very briefly, five specifics. First, watch. In the sense of be on guard. Which is to say, from a negative point of view, we must not fall into the wrong thinking that, well, when God chooses someone and works faith in their hearts, then He's going to save them really no matter what. And therefore, it's okay if I dabble in this sin or in that sin for a time. It's okay if I want to go and sow my wild oats for a period. God's going to bring me back anyway. That must not be our thinking. Because that's not at all the point. And if there are any here who have that thinking, let the example of Naomi be a warning. There are consequences. Yes, God preserves His own. Yes, God forgives His people for their waywardness and their backsliding. But yet, there are still some bitter consequences for Naomi. She lost her husband and both of her sons so that when she gets back, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Which is to say, bitterness. Because the Lord hath made my life bitter. There were consequences for her waywardness. Unless rather than supposing this doctrine is an excuse to go down the path of sin for a time, testing God's grace to see, yes, He's going to bring me back. Instead, this doctrine is reason to watch, to be on guard, to be all the more careful in walking aright. That's what the canons of Dort teach us. When it speaks of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints towards the end of that fifth head, it teaches us that this doctrine does not make the believer proud, but instead it's a reason for humility. And it's incentive to walk in a, a way that's pleasing to our God. And rather than making the child of God care less, this doctrine should make the child of God all the more careful So he's all the more solicitous of God's grace. He's ever crying out, God, preserve me. Keep me from falling so that he guards against the smallest beginnings of sin. That, first of all, is what gratitude looks like. It means watching. Second, rejoice. Rejoice especially when a wayward daughter is brought back. And do that instead of despising the individual or looking down on the individual. That's what the elder brother did. 
In Luke 15, his younger brother comes back, his dad throws a feast, and the older brother is not at all happy about this because I never left, I never departed. He looked down on his brother. And that will be our response. If we fail to see God's preserving grace in my own heart and life, that the only reason I haven't had that lamentable fall is because He's kept me. That's the explanation. And therefore, rather than looking down on an individual who's brought back, we rejoice to see the same grace at work in their hearts and lives. And that we are to joy is so clear from Luke 15. Luke 15, after telling the the parable of the sheep brought back to the fold, we read that the shepherd cometh home. He calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then Jesus explains, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. And then the same thing with the, the parable of the the lost coin and the woman searches and she finds it, we read, and when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together saying, Rejoice with Me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of angels, of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. The angels in heaven are rejoicing in light of the bulletin announcement this morning. Shall we not do the same? Because that's a part of what gratitude looks like. By rejoicing in our God for this preserving work. Third, embrace. That is, embrace the One who is brought back even as the church in Naomi's day did. We see that especially in Boaz. Boaz, that type of Christ, saw to it that Naomi and Ruth's needs were met. Come glean in my field. Servants, drop some extra. Make sure she's provided for. And that's the response of the church. Anytime someone is brought back, We do not hold that person at arm's length. We do not have to say to them, you have to earn your way back into our favor. But we embrace them. Wrap our arms around them. Care for them. Out of gratitude for God's preserving grace in my own heart and life. So first, watch. Second, rejoice. Third, embrace. Fourth, hope. Because there are many of us who have seen loved ones go astray. Whether it's a spouse, a son, a daughter, grandchildren, a friend, a brother or sister, 
I do not need to name them by name because you know who I'm talking about from your own experiences. And from living in your midst and talking with you, it's clear that there are there may not be a greater grief for some in the congregation than to see loved ones likewise depart. But now in light of this passage, there's hope. God brought Naomi back. She was gone for at least 10 years. He's able to bring our loved ones back. For He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Keep on praying. Keep on imploring God to work powerfully in his or her heart to come back. And may it be for us as a congregation that the woman sitting in the pew with us this morning, Ruth, that she is a beacon of hope for us. God brought her back. He is able to bring my loved one back. Have hope, child of God. And fifth and finally, the thankful response is praise. First, watch. Second, rejoice. Third, embrace. Fourth, hope. Fifth, praise. Praise to this Glorious God, praise for His mercy. He did not have to pursue after Naomi. He could have just let her plunge headlong into ruin. He could have allowed Manasseh to continue in his sin. He could have let Jonah sail all the way to Tarshish and just leave him there. He's under no obligation on account of anything in us but it's entirely of His mercy. His steadfast, covenantal faithfulness whereby He refuses to wash His hands of us to say, I'm done with you. That's mercy. And shall we not praise Him for that? And shall we not praise Him for His power whereby He's able to take that that hard heart and to make it soft again? whereby He's able to open the eyes that have been blinded for a period of time. He is truly a glorious God. And so with grateful hearts, let us praise Him in the whole of our lives. Doing everything we can to give Him honor. And singing, even as the choir sang the other night, Behold our God. 
seated on His throne. Come, let us adore Him. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy preserving grace in our hearts and lives. Continue to keep us and make us thankful for this work. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.